Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, What is this thing we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them, and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. 
And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What does it take to be finally free? That was the question that was sort of um, hovering over a group of prisoners who had gathered together in room 23, block 104, on March the 24th, 1944, in the prison camp Stalag Luft III on the Polish-German border. I imagine many of you know the story, the story that's kind of remembered in that movie, The Great Escape. Three tunnels had been built, hundreds of meters of tunneling had been done, hundreds of tons of soil had been dug out and distributed, they had made disguises, they had made maps. And that night, March the 24th, the question was, is this it? Is this the moment when we will be free? Is this what it takes? So as the, as the uh, leader of the operation, Roger Bushell, Big X, as he was called, heard that tonight would be a, cloud, uh, a cloudy and a moonless night, he gave the order, right, this is the night, let's get cracking. And so at 8.45 at night, they sent Leslie Bushell, the first man, into that tunnel to break through on the other side. You could just imagine that tension, imagine that moment. Is this what it takes to be finally free? And something of that tension, something of that question is what we should feel as we join Israel at the start of Exodus chapter 14. They've been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. They've had this time of, of, of the Lord confronting Pharaoh. They've had plagues. They've had the promise of release. And now, just glance up to, um, if you close your Bibles, we're on page 67. And we, we look at Exodus 14. And just rewind a moment to the bit that we read um, chapter 13, verse 17, just above what we read, this is the moment when Pharaoh let the people go. So now we're joining them, coming out of Egypt, and they're wondering as they leave Egypt, is this it? Are we now finally free? Now, it might be this morning that you feel, wow, it's a Sunday morning. I feel quite far from World War II heroism, and I certainly feel a long way away from ancient Egypt. But that question of what does it take, are we going to be finally free, is a question that I don't think is actually too far from our hearts. It might be that, that we come here this morning and we're Christians, we know and we trust Jesus, but we have those moments of, of maybe feeling those doubts. I mean, really, is the promises of Jesus, really, can he make me free? Can he bring me salvation? It might be discouragement, a sense of, ah. Oh, I hear the promise of freedom. I hear the promise of salvation. I don't feel like someone who's been made free. I don't feel maybe like someone who's saved. 
It feels like other things could offer me so much more, so much that's so much better. It might be that we as Christians have that sense of, well, what does it take to be finally free? Or it might be that we feel that we're someone kind of on the outside looking in. We're not really sure. We don't really believe it. We hear Christians talking about freedom, talking about salvation. What actually is it? And even if I knew what it was, I'm not really sure I need it. Or maybe I do need it, but I don't even know if it would be offered to someone like me. What does it take to be finally free? That question that we're asking this morning, that question that confronted Israel as they left Egypt, that is a question that we find answered in Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14 showed God's people then. It shows us, God's people today, what it takes. It proclaims to us that a people enslaved need a God who saves. A people enslaved need a God who saved. Two saves. Chapter 14 begins with a portrait of a people enslaved. A people of Israel then, we're going to see, we'll recognize something of us in them today as we look at that. Chapter 14 shows us a people enslaved. And we get a feel for that actually as, as we rewind, like I said, a bit to, to the bit that comes before. Because it looks like the people are free. It starts off with great excitement and great hope. The uh, Pharaoh lets the people go. And in verse 17 of chapter 3, and there they go, verse 18, look at them. They're, 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 um, they're led out and the people went out just before verse 19, equipped for battle. And as they go, verse 19, they carry with them the bones of Joseph. Joseph, the, who, who first went to Egypt and they kept his bones as this promise, this hope that one day they'd come out the other side. One day they'd leave. And now they, they, they take his bones as a sign of like, it looks like this promise, this hope is being fulfilled. And there in verse um, verse 20 to 22, they're traveling with the presence of God. Verse 21, the pillar of the Lord, uh, sorry, the Lord went with them by day and a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night, a pillar of fire. So we have this moment at, at just before verse 14, uh, chapter 14 where it feels like the people are free but in the midst of that, there is that tension because I, I wonder if you notice as we glance back at verse 17, what we notice that they're out of Egypt, but it seems that Egypt isn't really out of them. There's something of Egypt that remains in them because verse 17, the Lord doesn't lead them directly to the promised land. He leads them on a roundabout route. The Lord did not lead them by the way of this land, the Philistine, this other people, because lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Pharaoh has let them go that it might be that they'll be tempted to return back to Egypt. The people seem free, but in chapter 14, the Lord intervenes to expose that their hearts are still enslaved. Um, in, in, in the first half then of chapter 14, he, he, God exposes the heart of Israel. They have followed the Lord out of Egypt but they have carried Egypt in their hearts. So let's see what the Lord, the Lord de 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 declares in verses one to two. He says, look, right, I'm gonna lead the people so that they're trapped between the wilderness on the one hand and, sea and the sea on the other in verses, in verses one and two. And his purpose in that is so that, verses three and four, so that, verse four, 
I will harden Pharaoh's heart, he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so they did so. The Lord intervenes so that his glory might be shown. He steps in and acts so that his name will be known. Because even after all those plagues, even after his works of power, his acting in judgment over Israel, they still don't know, they still haven't seen, they still haven't submitted to the truth of who he is. So we see, we, we first see that, that the Egyptians still haven't recognized the truth of who God is. In verses five to nine, we see Egypt, the Egyptians still not recognizing that truth. <laughs> Just look, after all God has done, Look what they think the real story is in verse 5. The king of Egypt was told that the people have fled, and his mind changed. And listen to what they said. What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? He thinks that all this, um, this, this deliverance of Israel from Egypt, he thinks it's his work. What have we done? We let them go. He thinks that he's the one in charge, and he thinks that Israel still should be serving him. Even after seeing the power of the Lord over the land, even seeing God as, as, as the creator God, God the judge of all, he still thinks the exodus was his work and he still thinks that Israel belonged to him. And so, verse six and seven, he gathers up his troops. He gathers up his army. Verse eight, the Lord strengthens, hardens his resolve. And so he turns and attacks Israel. After all he's seen, shockingly, Pharaoh doesn't see the truth of who God is. But more shocking of all, more shocking than that, is that Israel shares his heart. In, in 13.18, it was looking good. 13.18, they, they leave Egypt equipped for battle. And then in, um, in, in, in 10, um, or, sorry, when, when they see, they, uh, Egypt sees them going sort of defiantly. In, in 14 verse 8, they saw the people of Israel going out defiantly. But now 10 to 14, we see Israel and a people whose hearts are still enslaved. No sooner do they see the Egyptians than they look up and they respond with fear. Just look at what happens in verse, in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. They see e Egypt and they respond with fear. And just like Pharaoh, actually they feel that this whole work of the Exodus was something done not by God, but by someone else. So they say to Moses, they say, look, verse 11 and 12, they think the Exodus was Moses' work. Oh, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to, in bringing us out of Egypt? They, th they think the Exodus was the work of Moses, and they think that they really belong to Egypt. So verse 12, isn't this what we told you, what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians 
than to die in the wilderness. What have you done? Leave us alone. We want to serve Egypt. They followed the Lord, but actually their hearts feared Pharaoh. They escaped Egypt, but they hadn't shaken off the hold of the slavery. Penned in and pursued, the Lord exposes their hearts. They don't love him. They don't trust him. They don't know him. They fear Egypt. Now, the Bible word fear, the word that we have here and that we see in the Bible, it doesn't, it doesn't really mean being scared. It sometimes involves being scared, but it doesn't only mean that, and it certainly doesn't always mean that. When the Bible describes fear, it's a bit like it's describing the way fear works on our hearts. It's the way gravity works on our bodies. Okay, I'm no physicist, but I, from what I understand, like gravity is basically that thing that helps us know which way is up and kind of figure our way around. It's like, you know, you've got this massive, this mass, the earth that kind of keeps us in place and the sun that keeps everything in place around it. Gravity is this great weight that means we know which way's up. And there's a sense in which fear, the way gravity works on our body, the Bible describes fear works the same way on our hearts. It's whatever has that weight on our hearts, whatever holds, has that weight on our hearts and draws us to it, that thing that gives us a sense of which way is up. And in this moment, we find that although Israel has followed the Lord, well, really, they fear Pharaoh. And as, as, as Pharaoh and his soldiers appear on the horizon, their hearts, like, like that pull, are pulled back to Egypt. They see Pharaoh, they fear, and they should serve. And so the Lord says to them, what they need to see as they look to see Pharaoh, verse 13 to 14, they need to look and see him instead. Verse 13 to 14, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which the Lord has worked for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord needs to free them from the fear of Pharaoh into the true freedom that is fear of him. Because it's one thing to escape. It's another thing to be finally free. That's what they found, and you know, as we know, if we know the story of the great escape, as Leslie Bushel, the first man into, the, into that tunnel, as he with his wooden trowel to, muscle the, to, to muffle the sound, he broke ground, emerged out the other side of the camp to their horror, they realized the exit of the tunnel was short of the tree line that was meant to give them safety. They could escape but they were far from free. They could escape, but they were a long way from coming home. And so as we arrive here in the midst by the, by the sea with the people of Israel, God's work of salvation here for them is still not complete. Not because his work has somehow come up short, but because he had brought them to this place, this moment to do something far more beautiful and far bigger not just an escape, but freedom. You see, he didn't just want to take them from a place of slavery. 
He wanted to free them from the hold that slavery had on their hearts. His Lord, the Lord's purpose wasn't just to bring them from the place of Egypt. The Lord wanted to bring them home to him, to know him, to trust him, to entrust themselves to him. In other words, to fear him, not be scared, not be scared, but to fear him, to have his character, his glory, his goodness, his love, to be that which orientates their lives, to be that which weighs most heavily on their hearts, to free them from the orbit of Pharaoh and bring them home to him. And I think as we read these these verses, as we read Exodus chapter 14, we can actually recognize in this portrait of a people enslaved something of our own hearts as well. It exposes our hearts. I think it could be that we're here this morning, like Egypt, like Pharaoh there, thinking that to be honest, my life is in my hands. I'm the one in charge. I belong to me. I choose who I serve. Or it could be like Israel. We're trying to follow the Lord but we keep feeling the tug of a heart that fears Pharaoh. You know, we fear where following the Lord might lead. It actually scares us to think what we might have to give up, what we might have to risk as we follow the Lord. Or it might be that the weight of other attachments, other loves tug at our hearts and discourage us or distract us or tug us away. So as we look at Egypt, uh, as we look at Israel, and if we're honest with ourselves, the question is, what does it take? What will it take? And the second half of the chapter shows us that a people enslaved, Israel then, us today, need a Lord who saves. The Lord spoke, 14 verse 1, saying what he would do. And now, 14 verse 15, the second half of the chapter, he says he will do it. Look at what the Lord declares that he will do. The Lord says to to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea. Divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the heart of Egypt so that they will go in after you. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And Egypt will know that I am the Lord, when I've gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The Lord acts to reveal his glory, to make himself known. He acts as he destroys Egypt and and delivers Israel. Just watch as, as, as we follow on from there and we see unfolding the Lord acting. The Lord intervenes, the Lord comes, he stands himself, the angel of the Lord who was going before Israel comes, verse 19, and stands between the two forces. And in verses 21 to 22, the waters are divided and the people pass through. Moses stretches out his hand over the sea. The Lord drives the sea back by a strong east wind all night, made the sea dry land, the waters were divided and the people of Israel went in the midst of the sea on dry ground. The language in these verses, the language of this moment, is like the language we hear a book before in, uh, at the very start of Genesis. We hear of darkness, we hear of light, 
we hear of this division of the dry ground, the Lord creating the work of this glorious creator God. And here we see him, this God who formed the world is the God forming a new people. Here is the creator God, the savior God, revealing and acting in his sovereign glory. And as he acts, he acts to destroy the enemy. Look at that destruction of the enemy in, verse, in verses 23 to 28. Verse 23, Egypt pursues Israel. Verse 24, the Lord steps in to protect his people. The Lord comes down. He looks down on the Egyptian forces, through the Egyptian forces, into a panic. And verse 25, Egypt realized what's going on. They look up, they see, let us flee, verse 25, from Egypt, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They see the glory of the Lord, but here they see the glory of the Lord, but they don't fear him, they don't turn to him, they turn against him, they flee from him. And as they flee, they're destroyed. Verse 26, Moses stretches out his hand. The Lord closes the waters and throws Egypt into the heart of the sea. Verse 27, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal course and when the morning, when the morning appeared. And as Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The Lord destroys Egypt and in that destruction of Egypt is the deliverance of Israel. The waters that destroy Egypt are the waters by which Israel are rescued. Verse 29, the people of Israel walked on dry ground. You just feel that contrast, the destruction on the one hand, deliverance of the other. Verse 28 ends, all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But, verse 29, the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. And so Israel, look at their salvation in verses 30 to 31. Verse 30, they look and they see their salvation from Egypt. They see that the Lord had saved them that day from Egypt. And verse 31, saved from Egypt, but they're saved for the Lord. They see the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so they feared the Lord and believed the Lord and in his servant Moses. As promised at the start of the chapter, as promised in the middle of the chapter, they see the glory of God in the greatness of this salvation. They see Egypt destroyed. They see the power of God to save. They see, they fear, they believe. And so as they, ta as they stand on the other side of the seashore, they see in that destruction, they see in that deliverance, the glory of their God and that glory turns their hearts to him. And so Exodus 15, we're not going to go into it, but Exodus 15 is just a song of celebration, a song of joy and praise, a song of freedom. Chapter 15 is the sound of freedom that is found in the fear of the Lord. As they stand there on the shore, they are saved from Egypt. They are saved for the Lord. They sing of this victory. 
they remember that moment. They see the destruction of the enemy. They feel their deliverance and their hearts are turned to him. You could just imagine what it would be like in, in the weeks and months after this moment. You could just imagine it. They're there camping out in the wilderness. And you can imagine a kid trying to fall asleep in a tent in the wilderness. And he's there and he hears the wind against the tents, you know, flapping on the tent. And he turns to his brother and goes, what? oh no, is that the sound of Egypt again? Again is Pharaoh coming after us? Again are the horses coming to attack us? And his brother saying, no, brother, remember. Don't you remember? Do you not remember what we saw? Egypt was utterly destroyed. Or you can imagine a few weeks later, people beginning to grumble and thinking, oh, do we really belong there? Shouldn't we feel the tug? They feel that tug of, 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 of what they knew in Egypt. And they need a friend coming alongside them and saying, mate, don't you remember? There is no future there because Egypt, don't you remember what we saw? Egypt was utterly destroyed. Remember that scene. Remember what you saw. How can that attract you? So when I think of um, The Great Escape, that story, that, that kind of impressive story of, of World War II heroism, it's always quite poignant, isn't it? Because of the, I think it was over 200 people who made it out of the tunnel. But of that 200 people, only three actually made it home. But I actually think most inspiring of all, the thing that most inspires me is, is, is a scene like this. A scene that the place that was once a prison camp is now overgrown by forest. You can imagine what it must have been like to have been a survivor of that camp and to go back in the decades after the Second World War and to see that the place where there was once a fence, there are now trees. The place where there were once um, guard posts are now grown over and are fields. They can go there and they can see that site. They can see that memorial. And to see that that enemy is now no more. That enemy has been removed. That enemy has been destroyed. They are now fully, finally free. The enemy is no more. And something like that is what Israel saw as they stood on the shore of the Red Sea. As they sung of that moment, as they remembered that moment, they knew the enemy has been destroyed. We have been truly delivered. And as they saw that destruction, as they saw that deliverance, their hearts were drawn to the Lord. Only this salvation is sufficient to set hearts free from slavery. And what Israel saw at the Red Sea is what Christians today can look back at and see at the cross of the Lord Jesus. Because the same God who came in a cloud amongst his people, the same God who held back the armies, the same God who came and parted the seas to destroy his enemy and deliver his people, that God came as Jesus. That God went to the cross. And the glory that shines forth from here, Exodus 14, that glory is just a glimmer of the glory we see in the Lord Jesus on the cross. The Red Sea was a place of destruction. The Red Sea was a place 
of deliverance. And in that destruction, in that deliverance, we see the glory of God. Well, that is how Jesus describes his work on the cross. Just listen to what he says about his coming work on the cross. He looks ahead to it in John chapter 12. He says, Father, glorify your name. Be glorified. Jesus said that voice, as God answers, I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. Jesus answered, that voice has come for your sake, not mine. Because now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. There on the cross, Jesus experienced the destruction that comes on sin. Jesus faced that punishment of sin. He suffered that destruction. But that place of destruction becomes a place of deliverance because he suffered that destruction for us. And as he suffered that destruction, he cast down his enemy. He cast down Satan and delivered us from him. And so us today, we can look at the Red Sea, we can look at how it points us to the cross and know in the cross the glory of God in his salvation. (laughs) Just as Israel stood before the sea, we stand before the cross. And that promise that God made to, um, to Israel, he makes as well to us. Fear not, for the Egyptians you see today, you shall never see again. So maybe like Israel, maybe like that kid in a tent in the wilderness, we might feel that fear. We might as Christians feel that fear and that wonder. Oh, is today, as I go to bed tonight, was today the day when I really blew it? Was today the day when I just sinned too much? Was today the day I went too far and God will have nothing to do with me? And the answer is the same. We need, brother, your enemy has been destroyed. The enemy has been cast down. As we feel ourselves fearful of that guilt and shame, we need to look at the cross and see the destruction of our sin on the cross, the destruction of that on the cross, and know what you see today, you will never, what you see there on the cross, you will never see again. Or you might feel to yourself, oh, tomorrow as I wake up, I feel discouraged. It's so hard to keep trusting Jesus, so hard to keep fighting sin. Will it overpower me as I face the day ahead tomorrow? We need to look at the cross and see destroyed there at the cross our enemy and its power. Just like the Israelites would say to each other, we need to hear God's word say to us and each say to the other, our enemy has been destroyed. It might be that we're on the outside looking in and we hear this talk about destruction. We hear this talk about judgment. We've been hearing it for weeks and it might make us feel this uncomfortable. And we might feel that we want to flee from that. We want to fear that. I just didn't, there's lots that could be said about God's judgment. There's lots that could be said about that destruction. But in a sense, I don't want us to lose that feeling. 
You could talk about it other way. You could talk about it to the people around us, around you uh, more this morning if you want to think more about it. But there is something right in feeling the weight of that, that this is a God who destroys his enemy in order to deliver his people. And the choice that faces us is the same choice that faced Egypt. Will they just flee from it? Or will they turn in fear and trust? And the promise that's held out to Israel is a promise that held out to each of us that that destruction creates an offer of deliverance for us in the cross We see that in the cross. We see that promise that that enemy you see today will never see again. Only this salvation will free our hearts from the hold of slavery. And so the question that we began with is the question we see gloriously answered in these verses. What does it take to finally be free? Well, a people enslaved need the Lord who saves We need to see this salvation and in this salvation see the glory of God and let this glory be what takes our hearts into the freedom that is fear of him. Let me pray. The Lord promises to his people, sorry, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. Father God, thank you for that promise. Thank you for that salvation. Help us to see in your salvation a glory that draws our hearts into the freedom that is fear of you. We pray this for our blessing and for your glory. Amen.